Berkeley Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Level Placement Podcast. I'm Bryce Cleveland. Sports media and the shifting landscape of those sports media rights is an often discussed topic on this podcast. This season, we've been extremely fortunate to have several guests that have played an enormous role in shaping that landscape. And our guest today, Chris Bevilacqua, has played an enormous role in multiple facets of sports media, content, and distribution. Over the past 30 years, Chris has established himself as a leader in the sports and media business, including being at the forefront of two transformative eras in sports and media history. Chris is the co-founder of Bevilacqua Hefflin Ventures, which represents a continuation and expansion of the business he previously conducted as a founder and CEO of Bevilacqua Media Company. At Bevilacqua Media Company, they had the mission to be the principal investor and strategic advisor for media and entertainment assets. Based in New York, BMC worked with professional athletes, sports leagues, and teams, collegiate conferences, as well as marketing and media companies. Prior to his work at BMC, Chris served as the chairman and CEO of Creative Artists Industry, Sports Media Ventures, and affiliate of CAA and Evolution Media Capital. He also served as media rights advisor for several prominent sports and entertainment entities. In 2003, Chris co-founded College Sports Television, the first ever 24-hour cable network dedicated to college and amateur sports. His vision and efforts at CSTV led to the acquisition of the digital media company, Official College Sports Network, which eventually became the industry-leading CSTV.com portal. From 1994 to 1999, Chris was the global director of negotiations for Nike Sports Media, licensing, and marketing rights. At Nike, Chris worked closely with top teams, coaches, athletic directors, and broadcast executives in the NBA, NFL, NHL, and NCAA. And in 1995, he was responsible for striking a landmark deal between Nike and the Dallas Cowboys. Chris graduated from Penn State with honors from the Schmuel College of Business. While at Penn State, Chris was a two-time All-American wrestler, placing eighth at 150 pounds in 1984 and fourth in the same weight class in 1985. In 2012, Chris was elected to the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. We're so fortunate to have Chris on the show. He has such incredible experience in the sports industry and the stories to go along with that experience. So we hope you all enjoy Adam's conversation with Chris Bevelacqua. Welcome to the Revenue Above Replacement podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me today is Chris Bevelacqua. Chris, welcome to the podcast. All right, Adam. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're really excited to have you. You've had a very long uh, and distinguished career in the sports industry, and we'd like to start from there. Can you give us a little background about uh, your background in sports and, you know, start from the beginning and then we'll work our way through sure. all the things that you've done? Well, for sure, it's been long. I don't know how distinguished. <laughs> I'll let the audience uh, decide whether it's distinguished or not. Uh, so, you know, I grew up uh, uh I'm actually, I live in New York now. I grew up in Massapequa, Long Island, and uh, ended up going to college at Penn State. I was a wrestler, competed at Penn State, and got my business degree there. And I actually, in the when I graduated in 1986, um, you know, my plan was to continue on and try to wrestle and compete in the Olympics. I was originally thinking that 88 Olympics, which was Seoul, uh, or the 92, which was Barcelona, because I, I was on what they call the ladder, the ladder being like the top, you know, three or four guys in my weight class. And, you know, that came to a screeching halt when I ripped out my arm in my senior year and had to have my 
whole arm and shoulder reconstructed. And that was that was the end of my my wrestling career. And, you know, the the downside to that not only was the end of the career, it was like I hadn't really thought about what I was going to do for a career because I was so focused on what am I going to do for the next two or three years to put myself in position to compete internationally. And so that sort of was upon me very quickly. And, you know, I had a business degree from Penn State and I just decided that I wanted to be in, but I wanted to be in sports. I didn't even know what the heck that meant. I said, let me, I just want to go in sports and, you know, let me see where I go. So I had a friend that, uh, you know, that in the wrestling world, if you will, uh, was business guy. He had some, he had a couple of friends that he introduced me to. And one of them was this guy, Gray Siemens at NBC. And Gray was the director of sports research at NBC Sports. Uh, so he was the guy that like would look at all the ratings information and help the sales you know, team figure out how much they're going to sell commercial inventory for. And so I got introduced to him and I went in 30 Rock, Rockefeller Center and, you know, bright lights, big city and met Gray. And he said, you know, tell me about yourself and what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, uh, well, what if I introduce you to a couple of guys down in NBC Sports promos? And I said, that'd be great. He's like, picks up the phone. He calls him a guy by the name of John Ship and his guy, David Sahadi. They were down on the 14th floor. He said, go down and see them. So I go down, I meet John and David. And they say, what are you doing? And I tell him, oh, I just, you know, finished wrestling at Penn State, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I, I want to be in the sports industry. Uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about what you do. And, and, and in those days, what they did was they were the director of sports pros promos. So they were the group that put the 30-second commercials together. Like, okay, the Jets playing the Patriots at 4 o'clock on Sunday. Tune in. Like, and you see a bunch of highlights. And so I said, oh, that's pretty cool. And they go, what are you doing tonight? And I go, I don't know, nothing. It was like 5 o'clock. He's like, well, we're about to go down to the edit room. Do you want to come down to the edit room? I said, sure. So I go down with them down to the edit room. And, you know, they down on the sixth floor of NBC where they have all the control rooms and and. Who do I go walking by? And the first guy I see is David Letterman. He's like getting ready for his show. Wow. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is pretty cool. So I walk in, I sit down and I'm watching them do the, uh, you know, how they put together the actual edits. And they go, um, hey, can you be fair? Because he go over there and pop that tape in and log it. And I go, what's that? And they go, you know, just look at the, you know, time coded, you know, Kenny O'Brien hands off to Freeman McNeil for eight yard gain you know, 104, uh, 50 seconds to 105, 22 seconds. Like you, you're literally logging it, right? I go, oh, I could do that. And I, you know, did that. And next thing you know, it's like midnight. And they were like, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, nothing. He said, you want to come back and help us do it? Sure. So that became my first job. They hired me. It was, a, you know, it was an hourly job working at, uh, I think it was $6.60 an hour. I started working like 20, 30 hours a week, living on my friend's couch on the Upper East Side. And I got to meet people on NBC. And I was, you know, I was doing that for a year or two and, you know, making no money, basically living hand to mouth, learning the industry, learning like how the hell all this stuff works. How do you make TV programs and so forth? And then, they had, you know, after about a year and a half of that, um, I, I got to a point where they asked me to go to the Seoul Olympics as an associate producer for the swimming and diving venues. And you're probably too young to remember this, but that was the Olympics where Greg Louganis hit his head on the on the platform or on the uh, on the diving board. 
came back, won two gold medals. I was sitting like 10 feet from where he hit his head. It was that close to it. Yeah. So I got to, you know, learn about live TV taped in, in, you know, like promo. And uh, I did that for a couple of years and I decided, you know, like, that's cool. But I had all these other relationships. I was meeting people at NBC, met the programming guys and, and ended up getting a job in programming. So I got out of production, went into programming. And that was in 1989 or so working for John Miller and Dick Ebersol and Ken Shanger and did that for a couple of years. And then, you know, I was learning about how the business worked. And then I had an opportunity to go into the sales side of the business. And I got hired by Major League Baseball um, by Steve Greenberg, who was then the deputy commissioner uh, working for Faye Vincent. Came in, Steve hired me, to, and I, am, I became the director of corporate sponsorship sales for the league. So we were selling the official sponsorships. Did that for a couple of years, and then that's when the league took back their rights, and they created a joint venture, um, and it was the first version of the baseball network. Like, it was way ahead of its time. And it was a joint venture between NBC, ABC, and Major League Baseball, where we sold and produced all of the national telecasts of Major League Baseball. So it was like a game of the week, plus the the All-Star game and the postseason of the World Series, of course. And that all stayed in place until 1994, when there was a strike. If you know, you might you might be too young to remember that in 1994, they, they canceled the World Series. Uh, yeah, no, literally. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Because so right, I was an Orioles fan back then, so, so that was bad for the Orioles. Were, yeah. Yeah, you were a younger man than I was. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, so right at that time, uh, so they canceled the World Series, and one of my clients was Nike. And so I got to know, meet the Nike folks, and um, they, at that time, in 1994, Nike was like a little old $3 billion a year shoe company, right? They, they hadn't really gotten into, you know, like now they're a little over 50, 55 billion dollars. So, you know, so they're 20 times the size they were back then. But they were trying to make the strategic move away from just a footwear only company into an entire sports company with footwear, apparel, accessories, equipment and so forth. And their next big move was to go into the apparel business. And they wanted to get into the licensing business and they wanted to be in business with the leagues. So they needed somebody that knew how to navigate that and lived it and worked out in New York and could walk across, you know, all the hallways of all the leagues to try and help them get into business with the leagues. And in those days, Nike was very pro-athlete, anti-establishment. So that they needed like a friendly face. And so that was that was me. They hired me as the director of league affairs initially. And I was a guy that was going to work between Beaverton, which is where they're located, and Park Avenue, where all the leagues were. And my first job was to try to get official partnerships in place, you know, broad licensing, marketing, media partnerships, um, and, and of course, sports sports marketing, where you have the logos on the uniforms and so forth. So um, we, we started, the very first deal that we ever did was the NHL deal, um, ironically, hockey of all things. And then, then we ended up doing an NBA deal we didn't quite get to the MLB deal that we wanted, but we ultimately ended up with an NFL deal as well. And that was the hardest one to do for a variety of reasons. But I was right in the middle of all that. And um, after a couple of years um, or, or right during that time, we came up with the strategy to own college sports. So 
I was the guy, in addition to dealing with all the leagues, that was going around the country and doing what we called head-to-toe deals with all the universities, like Miami and Penn State and Ohio State and, and Alabama and, you know, Oregon and all and so on and so forth. And as as the time went on, like I was I became the global negotiations director. So I was doing all the major deals on the sports marketing side, leagues and teams and athletes, some of the high pro like Deion Sanders and um, Ken Griffey Jr. Like I was I was just dealing with um, buying all of those types of rights. And so I got to about 1998, 1999. I'd been there a few years and we were dominating college sports. And I said, um, I, I think I came up with a plan because those are the early days of satellite TV and digital cable was coming and the internet was really starting to get more broadly distributed. And in particular, broadband was in the very early stages. And it was, it was like, I had a media background, right? And I, I had this idea that we should take our dominance in college sports because we were buying all these other rights with our college deals, like the right to put Duke and North Carolina in a preseason basketball game. And we would own the event rights and the TV rights and all the other related rights around it. And we weren't doing much with those rights that we had bought. So I said to Phil Knight and remember Tom Clark was the president, Howard Slusher, Rudy Chapa, I said like, we should take these rights and we, we should create a 24 hour college sports channel called the Nike college sports channel. And we could launch it. It's going to be, you know, if there's a 500 channel universe and there's a 24 hour food network, you know, we ought to be able to figure out how to launch a 24 hour college sports TV network. Yeah. So, you know, I put together a little business plan and uh, that was the, like towards the end of 99. And I presented it and Phil Knight, I remember him clear as day saying, you know, we, we don't, I mean, this might be a great idea, but we don't sell TV. We sell shoes and clothes. That's what we do which there's something to be said for being, you know, a a founder and a leader and, you know, you know who you are and you don't really deviate, you stick to the plan. And, you know, and I was, I can remember being, oh, wow, I I think this is a missed opportunity. I was a little deflated at the time. And I finally thought to myself, you know what, I've been, I got now, I'm I'm like in my early thirties, I've got, you know, 12 or 13 years under my belt. I learned how to you know, how TV is made. I know how to produce stuff. I know how to program it. I know how to sell it. I know how to get it distributed. Like maybe now's the time I'm going to go take a shot and be an entrepreneur. I'm going to go, you know, this is my shot. You know, it's a single guy. I didn't have a family and um, I just decided I was going to go do it. So I left Nike in the end of 99. I got my, I had a share house out in the Hamptons and I took the, uh, I took that summer and I, I taught myself PowerPoint and uh, that was yeah, 99. And I put together a little business plan and I started, I, I took the next year. Uh, so that was the end of 99, beginning of 2000, uh, which is, you know, ironically right at the, the beginning of the dot-com bubble bursting. So it wasn't really a great time in that respect. <laughs> and here I am with this idea and I'm going around the country meeting with the athletic directors and college presidents and commissioners. And I, you know, and my idea was very simple. I said, you guys are in a one bidder marketplace called ESPN. And, you know, if you ever want to get your value, you know, on the media side, right, because 
Uh, this is all post-1984, the Supreme Court decision on the, the Georgia football and Notre Dame decision where they broke apart the monopoly of the NCAA. You know, so now you're like almost a generation past it and you just have all of this capacity and you have one one buyer. ESPN basically owns everything. And that's why the market, right, is has not been unlocked. You need to create a competition. So I remember getting Jim Delaney, Roy Kramer, and Tom Hansen, the three commissioners, in a uh, in a in, in a conference room at the Charlotte Airport with my little PowerPoint up on a screen. And I'm going through this, and you know, I remember Delaney saying, "Like this, this actually is an interesting idea." And you know, Roy Kramer and Tom Hansen were, I mean, like, like what's this kid? What's this kid talking about? Like. <laughs> But I remember I still have the presentation huh. on the last page of my of my presentation. I said, I said, you know, if you do this right, you give me some rights to all the stuff ESPN's not using. I'll go out and raise the money. I'll create an alternative. Five years later, if we've created something, you'll either charge me a lot more for it or ESPN will pay a lot more to keep me out. Like either way, you win. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you're right. So. Uh, you know, so that's ultimately what ended up happening was, yeah, Chris, will. but the last page, just to finish that thought, um, I had in there and I said, if we do this right, you'll, you'll get a lot of money or someday you're going to own your own network. You're going to own your own network <laughs> and you're going to own your own network. And I was yeah. just kind of like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, you know what? You got to see the forest through the trees. So all that said, like not a terribly... Uh, I mean, there were probably other people that had thought of the idea before, but like thinking of it and having a nice presentation and all that other stuff, that's all nice and fine. But like, it's actually the doing it part that's really hard. Exactly. So, yeah. So <laughs> once I knew we had, you know, like it was pretty clear to me after spending a year flying around, I knew I had like real support. Uh, so then I went over to uh, a couple of guys. I remember that I mentioned his name earlier, Steve Greenberg. And by then, Steve had, you know, he he had left MLB when Faye Vincent got fired. Steve left to start in 19, I think it was 1995 or 1996. He and his partner, Brian Beadall, founded what was called Classic Sports Network. <laughs> and they built Classic Sports up and they sold it to ESPN and it was called ESPN Classic. Right. But here I go. I got my little presentation. It's now the year 2000. I say, hey, Steve, I got something I want to show you because he, he organized a meeting. And uh, I go in and I have my little deck and I say, hey, you know, I've spent the last year flying around the country. One bitter marketplace. Unlock the value. Yeah, I, mean, I, got, I have a bunch of interests. I have some term sheets that I had signed with, I think, the Big Ten, the, you know, the conference. USA. I had like three or four term sheets that said, if you do this, you can have our rights to all the stuff that we're not using. So I, I had enough. And I said, um, I know the college world, but I need somebody that knows, you know, the the cable and district TV distribution world, you know, and knows how to, to help me raise capital. So I, I'm going through my deck. I get about four pages in and Brian's like, this is the greatest idea I've ever seen. So, <laughs> Short, long story short there, we, Steve, Brian, and I get together, we partner up, we found what 
was it was called NCSN at the time, National College Sports Network, but we obviously rebranded it into CSTV, which is College Sports Television. And we raised a bunch of money, which ultimately became three rounds of financing from big private equity. Coca-Cola gave us uh, first time, first and only time they ever invested in a network. You know, they gave us $15 million as a strategic investor. And we went out and raised $110 million of private equity and venture and strategic money. And we launched uh, the network on April the 7th, 2003, which was the opening or the final game, of the NCAA championship that night, which was the, you know, when Carmelo Anthony and, and Syracuse won. Yeah. And we went on the air live that night. And like two and a half years to the day later, after we were up and getting, you know, we had some distribution and we sold it to CBS. And uh, it's now the CBS Sports Network. That's our, that right. was converted or rebranded from CSTV into CBS Sports Network. And that was in 2006. And since then, um, you know, I took a little time off and I decided I didn't want to be in the operating business. It was a crazy wild ride. It was so much fun being an entrepreneur, the ups and the downs. And, um, you know, I learned a lot and I just said, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I just gotten married. I started a family. And so I decided I was going to be an entrepreneur in sort of a different way where I didn't want to work for anybody. I started my own business, um, a media advisory investing business. And, uh, you know, it took a couple of iterations, but it's a business I still have today. It's called BHV, Bevel Aqua Hellfant Ventures. I have a partner, Adam Hellfant, um, who was actually, I was with, he and I were together at Nike back in the 90s. And so we have that business and we do, you know, mainly media advisory and commercial advisory work. Um, and like I said, we, we still have that. And then about five years ago, um, I started or founded a tech company called SimpleBet, and we're enterprise software. And uh, we we it's not it's not a part of BHP. It's totally separate. Um, and I had a couple other founders. And about three years ago, I actually stepped into the CEO role of that company. And you know, again, we're enterprise software. We sell enabling technology to consumer facing businesses, mainly in sports betting channels. So like FanDuel and DraftKings and BetMGM and Caesars, we sell them our technology and it, and it enables in-play wagering and fan engagement. And we also have that same technology that we also sell to the media vertical, right? Because it drives engagement, right? So like free to play mm -hmm. gaming uh, and interactive type uh you know, what we call micro, micro wagering, like what's going to happen on this next pitch? Is it going to be a ball strike or in play or what's going to happen on this next pass in a football game, like that type of technology. And it brings basically instant gratification to the in-play experience. So that's, you know, in a nutshell, I don't know how many minutes that took, but that's kind of my, uh, my career path. Yeah, I think there's a lot there, a lot to go through. Um, and I, actually some things that we maybe even didn't touch on that I want to touch on too. So, um, but let's start at the beginning. You know, a lot of our students are student athletes and are, you know, um, either current student athletes or have just recently stopped playing uh, their sport. How do you think your background as a wrestler particularly, you know, positioned you to be successful, particularly as you started your career? Yeah, you know, uh, I would say that um, it was it's been in, invaluable. I mean, it, uh, I the the single bit the single most important in, important moment in my life happened on a wrestling mat, and 
you know, I, I said, I've said this, I've said this, told this story many times over. And I always start by saying, does anybody know who Mike Langlius is? And everybody's like, who the hell is this guy? Mike Langlius. <laughs> I go, Mike Langlius changed my life. And he, I've only, I only knew him for about 10 minutes. And I was wrestling Mike. He was a, he was a wrestler from North Dakota state who I'd never heard of wrestling him in the NCAA wrestling tournament at the Meadowlands in 1984. So what is that? 39 years ago. And uh, Mike Langley is today owns a landscaping business in, uh, in Minnesota, uh, but for the record. So, <laughs> uh, but again, he was, he changed my life because I was competing against him. And like I said, in the NCAAs uh, that year, and I was up in the match uh, by a score of like 12 or 13 to three. I mean, it was like, I was crushing him halfway through the match. And what I, re- what I distinctly remember was he just was like, he kept coming at me. He kept like, he, he didn't, st- he wouldn't stop. And, you know, we had a couple of scrambles and I remember starting to get tired and third period starts and, you know, I'm huffing and puffing and he's keep coming. He's keep he's closing the gap a little bit. And then there was this one flurry where he dove at me and I went back over my haunches and I felt my ankle pop. And now I'm hurt. And now I'm like feeling sorry for myself. And so long story short, there is I lost that match. And I was devastated and I walked off the mat and I went into the, you know, the um, underneath the Meadowlands and you go into like the concourse area. And here comes my coach, Coach Lorenzo, one of the more influential people in my life. And I look at him and I just I lost it. I was like embarrassed. I didn't even know what I, I was so mad and so embarrassed, and so frustrated. And and I looked at him and I realized right then in that moment that there's I could wrestle Mike Langley's a hundred times and I would win ninety nine times. And in that one moment, there was only one reason I lost just one reason. And I lost because I got out competed, which is really a fancy word for saying I quit. I I literally quit. I gave up. And when you, if if you look inside my soul, like that's just not who I am. So Mike Langlius gave me the gift that keeps on giving. Right. And what I mean by that is I walked up and I looked coach Lorenzo in the eye and I go, that will never happen to me ever again in my lifetime. And, and I wasn't just talking about, you know, sports and athletics. I was talking about like life. And I can tell you many, many times over, and I'll, I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, like I gave you the, the, the CSTV story earlier and to just, you know, translate all that. Like there was a time like in 2003 and 2004 uh, where when we were out competing and trying to roll out CSTV and ESPN decided they wanted to crush us. Okay. And, you know, they were doing all kinds of nasty things. And, you know, we, um, you know, we, at this point, we had a bunch of rights. We weren't going anywhere. They, they launched, you know, a couple of years after we started, they launched ESPNU, which is a direct competitor to us. And, you know, they were, 
They were using their heavy, their leverage and trying to keep us out. And that all of a sudden opened up. Uh, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, we're down to the last $10 million because we had raised 110 and, you know, we're, and I'm saying, I'm saying to myself, I'm staring at the ceiling at night and I'm, I'm looking and I'm saying, all right, we're down to 10 million. I got 300 employees trying to get distribution. We're burning cash. And I'm staring at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning. And who do you think I was thinking about? I'm thinking about this is this is Mike Langless. There's no fucking way I'm giving up. There's no way I am going to the last. uh, I'm going to run through the finish line on this. So, you know, we we end up, um, you know, we we had all these issues with ESPN and we had a lot, you know, a lot of evidence about what was happening behind the scenes abuse of market power and all this other stuff. So we go and we, we hire, uh, you know, our, our law firm and says, Hey, we got it. like, so the lawyer, the lawyers go, we get good news. We get bad news. Like what's the good news. The good news is that, you know, this is, this is not good. I mean, that's like, that's an antitrust case. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's the bad news? The bad news is, well, you'll, you'll, you won't be around to see the ending. They'll just, you know, uh, so, so we end up, we end up hiring this uh, law firm. He said, but we can, we can, uh, uh, you know, maybe introduce you to some folks. So we go down to DC, we, you know, DOJ, FTC, SEC, and you start talking about it and they're like, wait a second, this, this isn't good. Sure enough. Um, you know, what ends up happening is they hire, uh, or they, the, the DOJ opens an investigation. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, what what was happening was they would they would buy all the rights. So let's say the Mountain West, they would own the Mountain West rights, and then they would they would show about three percent of all the inventory, and the rest of it would sit in the warehouse, and they would prevent companies like us from licensing that. Right. So when all that was going on, they knew you know they were being watched, and so. That allowed us to get the Mountain West rights and we got football rights. And then it allowed us to get the Conference USA and we got football. We got allowed us to get Atlantic 10. First time that had ever happened. And so we pierced that, you know, that exclusivity. And once that happened, you know, and then the luck, right? And this is what goes, this just goes back to the Mike Langley story, which is we, we didn't give up. We hung around long enough. And then Sumner Redstone decided you know, unbeknownst, but he decided that he was going to break his company in two and put the cable TV properties over here with Tom Freston. And he's going to put the broadcasting properties with CBS and, you know, outdoor and also all the, some of the other assets under less Moonbez. And when that happened and we had, all of a sudden had all these rights and they had a sunk cost of about six and a half billion dollars into the NSA basketball tournament, which they were never going to make money on. And, you know, the cable TV business was seen as high growth and the broadcasting business was considered low growth. So here was an opportunity for less movements and CBS on that side to have a cable property that had, you know, a six billion dollar sunk cost because they had the NCAA tournament and, and they could then become the leaders in the college you know, media space. And so all that came together at. All at the same, like right around the same time. And, you know, I'm convinced that the fact that we just grinded it out and stayed at it and put ourselves in a position 
to be acquired at the right time, at the right place. And so that's that's how all that came together and kind of all goes back to my Mike Langley's moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. I mean, one is like, right, I mean, you have to stay liquid enough to get lucky and you guys obviously raised enough money to to do that. But it's also to your point, right? If you hadn't kept going, particularly when it, against a very a dominant competitor who had a lot of resources, you could have easily made a different decision and tried to, you know, liquidate or try to get as much as you could from the assets and exit it, but you decided to grind through. Exactly. Um, uh, hopefully we can have time to touch on that again, but I did want to go back to, you know, again, kind of your, uh, go back to the beginning, which is, you know, you did say like, well, uh, obviously the start of your career in sports was basically labeling videos and that's not necessarily the most glamorous task in the world uh but also like building your network and those are two core things we try to tell students is try to get into the sports industry and try to build your network quickly so you talk about like i don't know if that was a plan or if that was something you thought of or it just happened to be the right place at the right time but was that like a concerted effort to try to get in and build your network as quickly as possible a hundred percent. Like I didn't know what I didn't know. And you always, you know, there's always, when you go into these things, um, like even in the CSTV days, you go into them, you like, I knew what I didn't know, but I also didn't know what I didn't know. And you discover, and I look back after that crazy exit on the CSTV side and I go, man, I'm glad I didn't know everything I didn't know because I don't know. I don't know if I would have done that. Exactly. It's like it would have been daunting to know all that. So there's something to be said for not knowing what you don't know. Um, But I did go into it. And part of my whole plan in the very early going, as I mentioned, I decided I want to be in sports. And I did. You know, it was very deliberate where I remember I told you I started with production. Then I went into programming. Like I knew if I was going to ever eventually pay all that off. I needed to learn an industry inside it out. And that only, you know, that that not only includes all the disciplines, but it also included a concerted effort to like make relationships and to, you know, build a network. Right. So from the very, very beginning, even though I didn't know exactly where I was going to land, I knew a key component was learning the entirety of an industry inside and out and making, you know, being open to having different roles and different disciplines across an entire industry, even though even knowing that, hey, I I knew pretty early on I wasn't a, quote, production guy, but I also knew that it was important to understand how that was all done, you know, as I went forward with my career. And then while I was doing that, like I said, like I made it a point to invest into relationships and stay in touch with people. And this, you know, this was in the day, obviously, before cell phones and the Internet and texting and like this is where you really had to make a physical effort to go see people and be present. And so like today's, you know, I've been through a couple of these things over the last 20 years and I can tell you um, sitting now on the other side, doing all the hiring, right. right. Going all the way back 20 years ago, like I've hired now in two or three different generations and <laughs> shows you how old I am. And, you know, there is a real difference in the, I don't want to say that the quality of the people that we're hiring today versus 20 years ago, but there is definitely a, a difference in uh, in how people interact and how people are motivated, right, and how they go about, um, you know, trying to build their own career. I mean, it's way different. And you know, like I I see it with my own kids, and you know, I have kids that are you know, four kids between the ages of 11 and 16. 
And, you know, I try to impart on them, even though they're still not of that, you know, professional age, like right. they believe me, they know the Mike Langley story. They've heard it many times <laughs> over. Yeah. And because I think it just translates to in, into life. And, you know, it's it's a challenge as a parent with all the technology and, you know, like just the chaos of the world and how information is whipped around and what's accurate and what's not not accurate. But really, like the social skills that I see today versus 20 years ago and even 40 years ago are are much different than they were when. And so obviously social media is such a huge thing. It's like a part of every it's the fabric of life. But it's still like I have this saying it still doesn't account for the last three feet, right? The last three feet is me and you sitting together physically somewhere. And there's just not as much of that, right, as there were as there was 20 and 30 years ago. And I just still think that is an incredibly important thing that I would not want your students to lose sight of, like building relationships and doing it, you know, in the physical world as much as you're doing it in the digital world. Like you got to have a good combination of both, in my view. Yeah, and I, I want to drill on that uh, topic because I think building your network, obviously, particularly if you're interested in sports, is critical. So, and you did obviously build your network pretty quickly and pre- from a pretty young age to the point where you're pitching Phil Knight, obviously, your business plan for what became CSTV. So, what do you think resonated with industry leaders with what you were doing, or how were you able to connect the industry leaders to build that network to get you to the places where you ended up going in your career? Well, remember, I had 12 or 13 years under my belt at that point of, of a real knowledge base, but I also had 12 or 13 years of relationships. And so right. like when I tell you I got Jim Delaney and Roy Kramer and exactly. Tom Hansen, they're like, I knew those guys for 10 years by that point. Right. And I had a, right. I had like a personal investment because I had done business with them before and had relationships and, you know, made a conservative, concerted effort. Right. So ultimately in business right? Not a surprise. Like it comes down to trust. You do business with people you like and you trust, right? And so I had already made that investment and had a pretty good track record, even though I was working for other employers in the 12, I mean, NBC, Major League Baseball, the Baseball Network, Nike, you know, like you have a track record and you build, you know, build relationship, you build trust and that never goes away, right? That's, you have it, but you also have to keep fertilizing it. And it's just a continuous investment, right? And so, you know, like in my case, I just unlocked the value of my relationships, but it took, it didn't happen overnight. It, you know, it took me 12, 13 years to build that. And, and all those people are still my friends, um, you know, to this day. And uh, I do want to touch, I, I want to ask you directly about sports media, kind of the evolution of sports media particularly given the central component that it plays in the industry. But on on more on the kind of uh, macro level, you've worked at the types of companies and the organizations that our students are looking to work at, whether that's on, you know, directly for a property, working for a league, working for a brand, starting your own venture. Um, You mentioned relationships and obviously trusting people. Are there common themes or common, you know, either are there specific differences you'd like to point out or are there common themes across all those different types of um, industries and organizations that you think are important for the students to know as they're looking to begin or uh, advance their career in the industry? I mean, you know, yeah, I think common themes in that, um, you know, what, what do employers look for, right? Like they look for 
um, you know, leaders and they look for, you know, self, self-initiation, right? And, you know, they look for, you know, qualities that um, are lasting, right? That can, like, I, I have some philosophies around all this, like, like, as an example, one of the great, uh, one of the great stories, I mean, I like to tell because it, it, it informs like how, like I manage, right? Having started businesses before is, I remember sitting back in my Nike days, I remember sitting, we used to take the college football coaches on a trip every year in February, right? Um, and I remember sitting around, it was in Hawaii and sitting around the pool and there was like a, a fire, it was a little chilly at night. And here I am, I'm sitting, I'm sitting with Joe Paterno, uh, Steve Spurrier, uh, Rick Neuheisel, and right to my right was Bobby Bowden. And in those days, this was in the 90s, Bobby Bowden was the Nick Saban of the 90s. Like, yeah. he was the guy that everyone was like, how the hell is he doing this? Like, right. he just was killing Like, every year he'd be in the top two or three programs, which yeah. was was really hard to do. And, and I, you know, I knew Bobby a little bit, and I sit next to him, and I go, and I'm sitting there, like, <laughs> around the campfire, and I go, hey, co- co- coach, I got to ask you, like, how are you doing what you do? Like, how do you, like – why are you so good? Like, why are you so much better than everybody else? Yeah. And he's like, and Bobby was, you know, he's a, a West Virginia guy and he's yep. at the time he'd been living in Tallahassee forever. So he's got this like Southern draw and he goes, he goes, Chris, let me tell you something. He said a lot, a lot of people think I coach my players. He's like, no, I don't coach my players. I coach my coaches. And it dawned on me like, like, that's how Bobby is scaling Bobby. He's like, if I find 20 mini, mini Bobby Bowdens and they all do what I do, that's how I scale my program. It's just like, it was brilliant in its simplicity. Yeah. Here it is, the college football coach. And I'm thinking, that's freaking brilliant because he's basically saying, hey, I'm not the smartest guy around, but if I find 20 more of me and I teach them up, then they can go do like, and then it's like, that's how I replicate my success. And it's kind of like, I've always remembered that. And so when I, when I hire and build a business, like it's pretty simple. Like I want people that are smarter than me, right. That I know have a work ethic that I know will, will have Mike Langlius in them. They're not going <laughs> to, they're not going to get out competed. Like I just need some basics and I can coach you up after that. Yeah. And let the smart people do what they do, and we we will win, a hundred percent. So so that's what I look for. Like when when I'm looking and sitting on the other side of interviewing people, like I want to know, like, all right, tell me about some adversity that you had. Like, how did you fight your way through it? Like you could see yeah. who has Mike Langley in them and who doesn't. Yeah, and uh, it's an excellent point. Usually we actually ask our guests as the last question, what are they looking for to hire people? But you've already answered that there question. So that's, that's great. Um, and we are getting towards the end of the time. And I, I this is going to be a, a long answer. So I'm glad we're ending potentially on this is the evolution of sports media, particularly, I think we can focus in on the college base, or we can talk about it more generally. You know, you mentioned even with the CBS, the evolution of cable versus broadcast versus the over the air. Now they're streaming elements. You obviously were on the forefront of college sports and college sports networks before there was the Big Ten Network and Pac-12 Networks that exist today. So I kind of just, you know, again, this is uh, going to be a take as you know as much time as you'd like here, but you know, the evolution kind of of the sports TV 
media landscape from where you were when you were at CSTV to now, in particular, you know, from a college sports perspective, you know, how those, the evolution from, like you're saying, that you're going to own your rights someday to now all these agreements and how you think if it does mirror the sports industry more generally or how that has impacted the engine that is the sports industry? I know that's a pretty broad question, so I'm happy for you to take it whatever direction you think works. Yeah, best. I mean, listen, I think that, um, you know, college, I, I don't necessarily, I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily break it out as a separate category within sports. Yeah. So I, I think it's, they're all a part of the same ecosystem, right? Whether you're college or pro or amateur. And, and by the way, it's technology has shrunk the world. So it's really a global market that, you know, we, we're very U.S. centric here, and yeah. you know each you know each territory around the world has you know different characteristics. But you know one of the main characteristics that I think affects everyone everywhere is just technology and and distribution platforms have shrunk the world, so that you know your IP as a rights holder in sports in particular is relevant worldwide. So you're in a global market, not not a U.S. only market, obviously college in the US is, you know, obviously the most valuable geography um, for college because of the, you know, the nature of the, of the, you know, competitions. But on the flip side, you look at Premier League soccer, right? They get more revenue from media outside of the UK than they do right. in the UK. So it's like, you know, it depends Same. on the brand and the sport. But I think the bottom line here, what's super interesting, right, as opposed to 20 years ago, right? CSTV was 20 years ago um, and just having been embedded in the in the media ecosystem, uh, you know, for my whole career, I have never seen the pace of change and disruption that we've seen in the last five or six years. And I mean, it, it is phenomenal. I mean, it's kind of like Moore's law. Everything goes yeah. doubles every two years or 18 months. I mean, it is crazy, the disruption that's happening here. And I, I'm fascinated by it. And in a way, with my current, you know, technology business, right, with with SimpleBet, we're sort of in that vortex by virtue of what's happening in the media ecosystem, right? Because right. what what you're really seeing in real time, right, is a very fast transition from what I call like a wholesale a wholesale model into a hybrid retail model with personalization of media at the center of it, right? So, you know, 20 years ago, right, you, in a wholesale world, you know, the the, the rights owner would sell to a wholesaler, Fox or ESPN, and then Fox and ESPN would sell to a retailer, Comcast or DirecTV, and you pretty much had everything contained inside that walled garden, at least for sports. Then, you know, like 10 years ago, or so-ish, you know, a little company called Netflix came out and all of a sudden, like, all right, we're, we're going to use the Internet to distribute programming. And, you know, they created a catalog business and, you know, everybody said, oh, great catalog. We can get anything we want. And then eventually, you know, and this is kind of their moment was, well, what if we don't sell a catalog? What if we sell something that no one else has? And you heard of the show House of Cards. They made an investment in House of Cards. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole industry has moved. And what you're seeing, you know, now happen in sports is, which has lagged several years behind what's happened in the more general entertainment program, is this this unbundling of the bundle, right? And so we're we're quick, we're rapidly moving away from a wholesale model into a hybrid, you know, wholesale retail model. 
and personalization at the center of all that. And, you know, like it's disrupting a lot of things, right? Because the, the people are cutting the cord and young, you know, like my kids, they're never going to have a cord. It's all going to be, you know, cordless and it's all going to be mobile. And so you have this like very fast dislocation occurring and you have all these big media companies like trying to navigate that and have a toe in both. And then you have the tech companies, right? So it's a lot easier, right, for a tech company to become a media company than it is for a media company to become a tech company, right? And so that's why you had the Amazons and the Netflixes and the Hulus of the world, you know, they they really dislocated the bundle and linear TV and but now you have the Disney's of the world and Disney bought BAM tech and they're trying quickly to now catch up to the, you know, the tech companies. And so you have this whole, you know, and, and it's on a, a head on collision. Right. And we just saw it with, you know, the last set of, of rights that the NFL brought to the market and they did all their deals. And then they did the Amazon. Now they did the Sunday ticket with YouTube. And, you know, now they're just did Peacock for the playoff game. Like, you know, it's like, all these things are happening and it's dislocating the, the 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 old world and the advertising business is in disruption too right because audiences are fragmented and but now you have targeted ad ad you know targeted advertising and brand advert like so you have all this stuff going on and it's just caused all this disruption and it's fascinating to watch it all happen kind of in real time it's like trying to build an airplane while it's flying and right. I think you'll see probably in the next, it'll probably take another five to 10 years before it's all fully settled. But I think what ultimately happens is there's going to be two different worlds. There's going to be, you know, the, the, the traditional cable bundle and like will, will still exist to some degree. It'll just be smaller. Yeah. And then you'll have all this other more direct to consumer personalization, interactivity, you know, sports betting and, you know, all the, all the things I can buy this, Jersey while I'm watching that broadcast and I'll get delivered to my front door with a drone in you know, the next two hours. It's like, so all that stuff is happening in real time. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's great for the consumer. Yeah. And I, there's a lot, again, there's a lot there. There's definitely a lot more we would like to unpack with your career. We're going to definitely have to have you on as a guest again. We didn't even get a touch on really sports betting or uh, your career with the, or your, your investment into the StubHub, or now obviously kind of the evolution of media, we would like to talk about more in depth. So a lot more to talk about. We're excited to hopefully have you back, uh, but thank you for the time today. And uh, thank you for being a guest on the Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. Uh, you got it. I'm happy to do a, a part two at some point. Yeah, we're going to hopefully do it sooner rather than later. So thanks for being a guest. Okay, you for got now. it. Yep. Uh, <laughs>